Okay, let's get back to the show. What's going on, Mars Touch? Come on, lock him up. UFG. Myers Touch Network, and Ron DeSantis is an idiot. I mean, it's no explanation at this point for what he's been managed to do these last few weeks and months and years, and it's amazing he's still going strong. Why, just today, a new video came out in relation to his, uh, his fight with Disney. Let's watch. You're free to indulge in that type of view uh, and ideology, but that's not consistent with our values in the state of Florida, so we took action, and now, because of what we did, Disney's not going to have its own government anymore. Yeah, he's on camera. So, here's what's going on. Yeah, uh, Disney's suing Ron DeSantis right now for their, his attacks on their special tax district and their whole corporation. Now, all started a year ago when uh, then CEO Bob Iger had the temerity to criticize the Don't Say Gay bill that Ron DeSantis was jamming through his stifle free speech in the educational environment. Well, by golly, we can't have criticism of His Highness Lord Farquaad. No, what he did is he attacked Disney right away. But see, the thing is, Believe it or not, corporations have free speech nowadays, and even corporations like Disney have free speech. But let's not let that get in the way of doing things that would win the hearts and minds of Republicans. You know what? That video came out today, but also there's a poll from CBS News that shows something like 85% of Republican primary voters want someone's going to attack woke policies. <laughs> and, and, you know, Rod's never one to miss an opportunity. But here's the thing. When you sue the government for violating your free speech, sometimes it's really hard. You know, you have to kind of infer from their actions what it is they're doing, but they actually are attacking your organization. Unless, of course, you're Disney and your opponent's Ron DeSantis. Why, he admits it, you know, right in that video. But, but don't worry, don't worry, really. But that can't be, it, it's very really hard to understand what he's saying. Unless, of course, he wrote it in his book. Craig Sargent, the Washington Post, has an entire piece out today examining the Disney lawsuit against Ron, Ron DeSantis. They actually pull quotes from his book that he wrote. And he talks about how you rapidly mobilize the legislature to go after Disney when they criticize them or take, out, take care of their special tax district. He really talks about how Disney, when they criticize them, was a fragile assault on his you know, regime. And, and therefore, and, then, and, then, yeah. and, and he had to do something about it. But, but don't, don't worry, that's just the book. There's a Royal Wall Street Journal out there because Ron DeSantis can't just keep his mouth shut. 
in the op-ed, you actually talked about how he decided to fight back against woke Disney and, and put them in their place because they're woke ideology. So you got Talking Point USA, you've got his book, you've got an op-ed the Wall Street Journal. But wait, there's more. <laughs> he did a press conference two weeks ago. And his press conference, well, he had some great ideas. And oh my gosh, you guys, this is hilarious. District. You know, one of the things they tried to do was, was put restrictive covenants on the land that the district owns. So if you look at this whole special district, well, Disney Corporation obviously owns a lot of it, but the district owns other land. You know, quite frankly, I wasn't even thinking about that land. Uh, this was not something that was really important one way or another. We just wanted them to live under the same rules, pay the debt, pay the taxes, all that stuff. Uh, but come to think of it, now people are like, well, there's, what should we you're watching the legal breakdown. So, Graham, a Trump's lawyer tried to pull a stunt in the ongoing E. Jean Carroll defamation case. Can you speak on what happened here? Well, Brian, I think you selected the perfect word, stunt. Um, it's not unusual for attorneys to make mistrial motions, but what's extremely unusual is for a judge ever to grant a mistrial motion. That means something so dramatically wrong in violation of the rules of evidence or some procedure of the court. Something so wrong has happened that the judge has to just throw the case out and then sort of debate on whether the case should be allowed to be rebrought, whether it's a civil lawsuit in a criminal prosecution. So, also motions for mistrial are often made, rarely granted. And I love this because here's what the New York Times reported: Takapina's um, stated reason for moving for a mistrial was he said that the court had made pervasive, unfair, and prejudicial rulings. Which hunt? Okay, now I added the witch hunt. <laughs> that kind of what it sounds like. Takapina didn't even have something concretely to point to. Basically, what his argument was was that, you know what, Judge Captain, it just made the proceedings unfair. You're biased against my client in favor of E. Jean Carroll. That kind of an attack on a judge never works, and think about it. In order to be successful in that kind of a mistrial motion, Judge Kaplan would have to say to himself, you know what? I have been entirely unfair throughout the trial, so I'm going to throw the trial out. It doesn't happen. I can tell you in my 30 years as a prosecutor, I had countless mistrial motions made by defense attorneys and had exactly zero granted by the court. When pulling a stunt like this hurt Takapina's case with the judge and the jury, since he's basically trying to invalidate the work of those very people, it can't hurt the case in the eyes of the jury because these kind of motions are litigated out of the presence of the jury. So they should actually know nothing about Takapina filing a mistrial motion or how the judge resolved the motion. But it hurt you in the eyes of the judge. You know, it shouldn't because judges are used to, let's call them attorney shenanigans, and they usually don't let that seep in to the way they preside over a trial. The flip side of that coin is judges are human beings. And if an attorney begins to lose credibility with a judge, well then I think that judge is going to be a lot less receptive to arguments that attorney makes moving forward, you know, through the, the, the pendency of the case.
We've spoken about this before, but I think it's worth reiterating. Why is a judge's relationship to, to the lawyer, for example, to Joe Takapina, important here when ultimately it's going to be the jury that decides the outcome of this case? Yeah, because the judge is the gatekeeper of the evidence. Judges look to the attorneys in the proceedings to be honest, to be candid, to only make arguments that are supported by the law or by the rules. And once the judge gets the sense that one attorney doesn't really care about the rules, what will happen is the judge will then always look to the other party to get an accurate account of, for example, well, what does the case law say about how I should rule on a particular objection or a particular point of law? And your credibility with the judge is everything to an attorney. So once you lose that credibility, that standing in the eyes of the judge, things typically will not go well for you. Is this something that an attorney would do if the case in general is going in a good direction for him? Makes perfect sense, right? I think I'm winning hands down, so I want the trial to be thrown out and start all over again. Yeah, this is an indication that Team Trump thinks yeah, things aren't going too good for us right now, so let's throw a mistrial motion in the mix. Now, I will tell you, attorneys will make mistrial motions for basically three reasons. One is a legitimate legal reason. If you don't do something in the trial court, you don't object to a piece of evidence being admitted, you don't make a mistrial motion if you think the proceedings were unfair, and then you lose, and you want to appeal that issue to the appellate court, let's assume some appellate court judge thinks, well, you know what? Maybe they were in mistrial territory. If you didn't make the motion for a mistrial, you've waived your right to raise it on appeal. It's called preserving issues for appeal. So it's not unusual for defense attorneys to make a mistrial motion somewhere along the way. So in the event they think they'll get some play on that issue with one or more appellate court judges, they will have preserved their right to argue it on appeal. Second reason defense attorneys will make, or any attorneys, defense attorneys typically will make a mistrial motion is to get the opposing counsel off their game. Because now they have to spend long hours at night, you know, writing up a response to what is largely a frivolous mistrial motion. That is time-consuming and distracting attorneys from other important tasks that they could otherwise be turning their attention to during the course of the trial. Third reason, in a case like this, public uh, publicity. Because what are we now talking about? Donald Trump's mistrial motion. We saw the story all over the cable news in recent days. So I think, you know, Joey Takapina may have gotten exactly what he wanted, some PR. And when people hear, oh my goodness, a mistrial motion has been filed by the defense team, what do people immediately think? Boy, something, something went wrong in the trial. But like, nothing went wrong in the trial except Joey Takapina filing what was probably a frivolous motion because Judge Kaplan promptly denied the motion. And, and by the way, we've seen this before, this phenomenon before, where Trump basically tries to just insert something into the, into the, I guess, the zeitgeist, and then just the fact that they inserted that accusation, which is, for example, what happened, uh, you know, during the stolen election saga of, uh, of 2020, where they just kept claiming that there was fraud in the election. And of course, we know, thanks to, you know, thanks to the, the, the results of those more than 60 cases that went through the courts, that none of them were actually validated, that there was never any proven claims of fraud, but because they had introduced it into the ecosystem so much, 
But that's all we heard for weeks and weeks and months and months. People started to believe it just by virtue of hearing it so much. It didn't matter to them whether it was ultimately proven true or not, because the, the point of that wasn't the truth. The point was just to, to basically change the narrative, and that's exactly what they got then, and that's clearly what they're trying to do now. What a great parallel, and think of a couple of instances where Trump has done that to great effect. As you say, in the whole stolen election nonsense, remember when his DOJ official went to him and said there was no fraud undermining your election loss. And Donald Trump said, okay, just say there was and leave the rest to me and my Republican allies in Congress. How about President Zelensky? He said, look, I want you to announce an investigation into Joe Biden and his son. It doesn't matter. There is no investigation. You don't need to conduct an investigation. You just need to announce an investigation. And you know what? Shame on us and shame on our law enforcement authorities and our intelligence community not to have tackled this, not to have wrestled it to the ground and put a stop to Donald Trump's nonsense earlier on. If they had, we wouldn't be where we are today. And I think, you know, a big reason, I know that we're going off on a tangent here, but I think a big reason why it's so important to do this and to reach people is because the right-wing media ecosystem works as such a hermetically sealed ecosystem, and then when they get information in there, nobody ever gets actual information because they're not able to have any um, insight into that stuff. It's so important to just try to try to inject honest, truthful information into the news, whether it's here on YouTube, whether it's, you know, on Facebook, whether it's in mainstream media, because because so much of what the right relies on right now is just introducing this bullshit narrative, regardless of whether it's true or not, because they know full well that people aren't going to pay attention to the fact checks. They're not going to follow up for more accurate information. And they have people like, like uh, you know, Mel Gaughan, Tucker Carlson, who would just say, well, I'm not, I'm not telling you that something is true or not. I'm just asking questions here. And this is, this is basically a strategy that's been employed by the right for so long, where they give themselves just enough plausible deniability that they can, you know, uh, um, protect themselves from any legal liability, and yet at the same time, get the point across that they're trying to get across, which is you know, to feed the audience this disinformation. And Brian, that's why we need juries to decide these issues, because we're going to give this case to the E. Jean Carroll jury, and they're going to get their decision right. You know, once Donald Trump gets indicted and prosecutors are standing in the well of the court, arguing to 12 people in a jury box, sitting as the conscience of the community, all the propaganda, all the disinformation, all the Fox News nonsense melts away, and there's 12 jurors who swear, they take an oath, to decide the case based only on the evidence they see in the courtroom, they're going to get it right time and time again, just like they're getting it right in the Oath Keepers cases, where they have convicted in all three conspiracy cases brought against Oath Keepers. They're about to convict, I predict, in the Proud Boys case, Juries tend to get things right, and that's why we need to get all of these matters in front of a jury. That's a, that's a great point. I think it's uh, it's pretty amazing to see what happens when you're not uh, contending with the whole both sidesism of a right-wing media ecosystem with such an insanely outsized uh, role here. But uh, anyway, I want to move over to... Uh, the, the possible results of this case. Now, E. Jean Carroll's side is seeking damages and a retraction of Trump's defamatory statements. Do you actually see Trump doing that if he loses here? And, and how could that work? If that is one of the sticking points in this case, if he is found liable and he refuses to do it, how does something like that work? Yeah, I'm going to bet my $1 that Donald Trump will be retracting exactly nothing. 
Um, and, you know, this is about money damages, and I, I don't know that a defendant can be compelled to apologize or retract as a consequence of losing a sexual assault and defamation civil lawsuit. So it may very well be that's something that Eugene Carroll's team, her lawyers, demand as part of the settlement. I don't know that, that that will actually formally be ordered, but what can go on, Brian, is there can be post-verdict negotiations. I've been involved in that myself, where I really wanted to develop a defendant as the cooperating witness, but he refused to plead guilty and cooperate. So what did I do? I took him to trial, got him convicted, the whole bunch of years hanging over his head. And then I, I stepped back to him. I said, what about now, sport? You want to negotiate now when you're looking at 30 years in prison? And sometimes I could bring people on board because I would negotiate with them post-verdict. So it wouldn't shock me if this jury finds for E. Jean Carroll, and then maybe there's a little bit of horse trading, some negotiation between E. Jean Carroll's legal team and Donald Trump's legal team about what the ultimate sort of penalty should look like. And just one last question here. It's kind of a housekeeping question. We are now in week two of this defamation trial. What's the timeline here looking like? Judge Kaplan announced up front one to two weeks. Uh, this week is week two. Wouldn't shock me if it lingered into a third week. And then the other thing you can never predict how long a jury will deliberate. I've had juries deliberate 30 minutes. I've had juries deliberate four weeks. Um, now that's impacted by the length of the trial ordinarily, but well, I would suspect we will be hearing the jury verdict probably sometime into next week. Okay, well, for anybody watching to stay on top of this case uh, as it, you know, very quickly uh, heads to a close here, make sure to subscribe. The links are right here on the screen. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen. And I'm Glenn Kirchner. Watching The Legal Breakdown. Thank you. 
Congress? How could you not like Donald Trump? What do you see in some of the cross-examination and the testimony we've seen so far? Tired tropes about rape victims, just as you said. You know, one of the things that's so unusual here not only is that the defendant is a former president, but that Adrian Carroll is sort of so generous in her own right? She's a 79-year-old woman whose career has veered from gonzo journalism to writing for SNL to then becoming a beloved advice columnist. And she herself is quite a character and a personality. And yet, at the same time, her experience has echoes of millions of women all across America who stayed silent, never called the police, never screamed. And I think it resonates with lots of women who are watching our coverage this morning and really hanging on the coverage that's available about the trial. So obviously a civil lawsuit has a different standard than a, a criminal trial. So based on what you've heard, have prosecutors made the case here? Well, we're not prosecutors, right? <laughs> Um, although the gentleman who took her through her questioning was a very skilled formal prosecutor, I think they have made their case. They only have to show by a preponderance of the evidence, right, more likely than not, that Donald Trump assaulted her for her to prevail on her battery claim. On the defamation claim, they have to meet a little bit of a higher standard. It's clearly convincing evidence that he intended to lie about her or that he was just so reckless in what he said about her.
juries are no different, especially in a community that voted overwhelmingly for Trump's opponent. All right. Uh, as for the criminal charges Donald Trump faces in New York in connection with a hush money payment allegedly made to adult film actress Stormy Daniels, yesterday lawyers for the former president asked a judge to dismiss a motion filed by prosecutors last week. The motion seeks to prevent Trump from publicly discussing evidence turned over to his defense team in the discovery phase of the case, citing his history of attacking those involved in prosecuting him. But the former president's legal team says the motion would infringe on Trump's First Amendment rights and would be a, quote, extraordinary broad muzzle on a leading contender for the presidency of the United States. Instead, they are arguing for a scaled-down version of the order. Lisa, I'll start with you. Um, your take. He wants to talk about it. I mean, I, I understand that there the, are the reasons why possibly a judge doesn't want this type of... In, in any case, people to talk about it. That's right, and we can see from the Carroll trial what happens when there isn't such a muzzle on Donald Trump, right? The other morning he posted on True Social further allegations about Eugene Carroll's lawyer being a Democratic operative, raising the issue of DNA, which has already been precluded from the case. Mm -hmm. So I think it's totally reasonable that the Manhattan DA here isn't lightly seeking the protective order that they want in place, but is really trying to protect the people who work in that office, their families, right? Some of whom have protection right now, around the clock. We're playing with fire here. Every true social post is incendiary with respect to the emails, letters, other social media behavior that we see from Trump's followers. Again, as I said earlier in the show, there are people who have 24-hour security because of things Donald Trump has said on social media. David Amberg, your take. Well, first off, happy birthday, Mika. That's great to have you on today. I agree with Lisa. You know, it's not usual for a defendant to be running for president, so a judge is going to give him a little more leeway than he would other defendants. And that's why, despite the inflammatory posts on social media, the judge is not going to impose a full gag order on the former president, but he could impose a limited gag order. And I think that's going to be treacherous sailing for the former president because if he continues to speak out, he continues to antagonize his judge, he will get that limited gag order. And if he violates that, he can get up to 30 days in jail for contempt. And that may be the quickest way for him to end up wearing an orange jumpsuit. And, you know, when he's complaining to a judge and seeking these motions, he's, I think, knowing that the judge is unlikely to give him the relief that he wants, but he's playing for the next call. It's like yeah. sports, what, what the reps, yeah. You know the rep isn't going to change a past call, but he wanted to change his behavior for future calls. And given the benefit of the doubt, I don't think it's going to work, but they're trying everything. State Attorney for Palm Beach County, Dave Ehrenberg, and MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin. Thank you both very much for your insight this morning. Appreciate it. So in less than an hour, the Judiciary Committee will hold a hearing entitled Supreme Court Ethics Reform, largely in response to the recent revelations of Justice Clarence Thomas accepting lavish gifts from a wealthy donor. Joining us now, Democrat Senator Alex Padilla of California. He's a member of the Judiciary Committee and a co-sponsor of a 
new bill on court ethics and transparency. Uh, thanks for coming on about this. I guess my first question would be, is there anything that um, the committee is looking at as it pertains to what Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas did accepting these large gifts, um, even a house his mother lived in getting paid for? Is there any consequence to this? Or are you looking at reforms moving forward? Uh, well, that's uh, exactly the purpose of the hearing this morning. Uh, good morning, Nika. Before you go on, let me just say happy birthday. As you are well aware, uh, the Judiciary Committee under the leadership of Chairman Durbin have tried a couple of things. You know, was there going to be an opportunity to bring Justice uh, Thomas and four questions? That was a long shot. We reached out to uh, Chief Justice Roberts, and he declined to be in front of the committee. And so it tells us, frankly, what we've already know. The Supreme Court is unwilling to police themselves. And to think that the, 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 the reports that we've all read are uh, unconscionable and um, just remind us that the highest court in the land should not be subject to the lowest ethical standards. And if they won't police themselves, there's clearly an opportunity for Congress to come in and establish those clear standards for investigating when misconduct is reported, uh, to have a, a better clear standard for recusals and other ethics laws and make sure that it's an enforceable code that the Supreme Court justices uh, need to be held to. So, Senator, uh, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts has declined to appear at this hearing. Uh, it is wrong, we should point out, for Supreme Court justices to appear at congressional hearings, but if he were there, what are the specific questions you would ask him or Justice Thomas? What are you getting at here? Uh, exactly. Well, first of all, when it comes to report time, uh, Clarence Thomas's uh, activity, the gifts he's received, the luxury travel, etc. Uh, you know, that, that's just unacceptable. Think about the ethics standards and requirements that are imposed on the President of the United States, uh, administration officials, every single member of Congress. To think that that same standard does not imply, apply to Supreme Court justices is surprising and shocking to a lot of people, especially recognizing how big a decision that the Supreme Court makes. Uh, not just on issues of, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, a couple of examples in recent years. Supreme Court have uh, infringed on uh, voting rights. Uh, they're under the protection of the federal voting rights. Uh, they've made it easier for wealthy individuals to influence politics and campaigns. And all the issues that make the way the Supreme Court, whether it's taxation issues, choice issues, look at the, the impact of the Dobbs decision last year, gerrymandering, uh, and everything else. Uh, there's no wonder why there's such a crisis of confidence in the decisions by the Supreme Court. They should be eager to restore that confidence, to restore public confidence in the institution as a body. And if they won't act, then it's time that Congress does. And uh, again, that's the, uh, uh, the gist of our hearing today. Yeah, Elise, it just seems, I know you have a question, but I, I, I look at what has happened, what has transpired with this Republican donor and uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and that's set aside his wife and the text to Mark Meadows. You have to set that aside, I guess. But it's hard to see how he's not completely exposed. And how does this decision making not get impacted from receiving such huge, lavish, hundred, several hundred thousand dollar gifts? And I guess now that I think about it, you know, you remember the famous 
story when Dick Cheney shot someone on a trip. Yeah. I guess he had his own plan, but Scalia was on the was on the trip, and you know, Senator Padilla makes the big point that most people don't realize that the standards are so lax yeah. for members of the Supreme Court. And I actually, frankly, am surprised because I just assumed it would be similar to the executive branch or congressional. Can you talk about a few rules that just simply do not apply to the Supreme Court justices? Yeah, well, again, for lack of an enforceable, clear and enforceable ethics standard, we end up with this type of reported activity. Uh, for members of Congress, you know, just as a counter example, limitations on who you would. You have to disclose all your income sources uh, every given year. You know, and, and clearly, I can't vote and, and should not vote on anything. I have a conflict of interest. If I have a financial interest in a skewed judgment, I should be recused from those decisions. To think that does not apply to the highest court in the land uh, is frightening and clearly, clearly needs to be fixed. Democratic Senator Alex Padilla of California, thank you very much for coming on. We'll be watching the hearing today. Turning now to the fight over the debt ceiling, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is warning the federal government could face default as early as June 1st, sooner than previously expected. Between now and June 1st, there are only eight legislative days in which both the Senate and the House are in session at the same time. Let's bring in the co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box, Andrew L. Sorkin, and let's start right there, Andrew. Well, you're, you're, you're right. It's, uh, it's eight days. It's really 30 days as of today in terms of the negotiating, which is going to happen at least behind the scenes. Um, much earlier than people had expected, but Goldman Sachs had just come out with a note earlier this week suggesting that, that we would not hit that ceiling till perhaps as late as the end of July, which would have given them the equivalent of 90 days. So now the rush is on. And, and the real question, I think, at this point is whether the Republicans are, are effectively going to um, stop pushing on some of these spending cuts or whether you think Democrats will actually come to the table? I think the answer is still unknown. And, and who really is in the advantaged seat at this point in, in those negotiations? Um, of course, the Democrats want a clean bill. Um, the Republicans have already uh, approved or, or, or voted on uh, that, that, that spending cut bill. So I think we're going to see where that goes. But this all factors into something else that's happening this week, uh, which is tomorrow, which is what does the Federal Reserve do in the context of raising interest rates against the backdrop of a potential uh, default on the debt. The expectation is that they're going to be raising rates by 25 basis points, but it's not just whether they raise or not tomorrow. That's almost baked into the cake that they will. It's what they say after or it's going to come after that. Do they say we're going to pause? Do they say we expect to actually uh, continue to raise rates? And that is the ultimate question that the markets and I think investors and frankly um, policymakers are going to be looking at in the context of this, this debt-to-pay issue. Uh, welcome back. Following a string of recent mass shootings in the United States, including the one we've been covering in Cleveland, Texas on Friday, new polling shows young Americans are becoming more and more concerned about gun violence. In the latest Fox News survey, 16% of registered voters under 35 years old say gun violence is the top issue facing the country. That is up 3% from the poll taken last year and up 
15% from just two years ago, when only 1% considered it the top issue. Joining us now, the president of NextGen, the country's largest youth voting organization, Christina Simpson Ramirez. It's really good to have you on the show. Actually, you guys are going to be announcing your endorsement in the 2024 presidential race, so how about it? Yeah, no, we're really excited. I lead NextGen America, the country's largest youth vote organization, and in 2020, we helped mobilize one in nine young voters that turned out across the country, leading to the largest youth voter turnout in American history, helping send Donald Trump packing, electing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and we're ready to do it again this election because we know it's at stake, whether it's gun safety, LGBTQ equality, abortion, climate change. There's just day, night, uh, day and night between the two parties. And in terms of gun safety, I think a lot of young people are, are, are becoming um, tuned in to politics, are banning abortion, but in terms of gun safety, they feel this is a fight for their lives. They've grown up in fear. Yeah, you have people that are young people that are afraid to go to school, but literally worry about being murdered in their classrooms, a place that should be sacred, that should be safe. And they see that Congress is not acting. They see that the Biden administration has acted, has done as much as they can, but that there is a party, a Republican party, that feels bought and sold by the NRA. And that that is who's standing in the way in progress of doing the most basic thing, which is keeping young people safe at their schools. So what's the impact of climate change? Plus for that, I'm sure that young voters disproportionately care about that. Uh, you know, this administration has been proud of its climate change record to this point, promising to do more. How much of a driving force is that in your decision? It's a huge driving force. We were founded 10 years ago with the belief that we could tackle the biggest crisis of our time, which is climate change, and that we could do that by harnessing the power of young people. And 10 years ago, people said that it was a waste of money and time that young people would never turn out. And now, it's 10 years later, largest youth voter turnout, the last three elections, and the climate crisis. No country has passed as a large initiative as the Biden administration with the Inflation Reduction Act, the largest single investment by any country on the planet. We're backing Joe Biden because of progressive policy, not just because he's a Democrat, but because he's really delivered for young people. So young voters, 35 and under, that's the classification, correct? That's right. Okay. So I get all the factors of their lives. They have seven, seven kids. Okay. I get the fact they're worried about paying off their college tuition loans. I get the fact that they're wondering, you know, am I going to get a job commensurate with my skills? Am I going to get paid equitably? I get the rental costs. I get trying to find a mortgage if you're if you married at 27 or 28. What I don't get is in the year 2020, according to this poll, only 1% of young voters, 35 and under, felt gun violence was a real problem. And now it's 16%. What are they missing about what's going on? Well, I think that young people have inherited some pretty terrible problems. This is the first generation in American history to be worse off than their parents. So they've inherited an economy with runaway and grotesque income inequality, a climate crisis, a democracy in decline, an attack on abortion rights. So there's a lot of different issues. And now you have the issue of gun safety surging. That's because there has been movement only because young people have been organizing. But you look at what happened in my home state. I live in the state of Texas. Where in Uvalde, we're coming up on the year anniversary when uh, two, nearly two dozen people were killed, children, um, in elementary school. And young people are going to school day after day. And they're walking out. They're demanding action. And there's a whole host of issues. But this has surged because young people feel so 
so unsafe, so terrorized and terrified just to go to school. Christina, almost a year ago, the Supreme Court repealed Roe versus Wade. How have you seen activism evolve among women, among men, among the young voters you're around in the years since that ruling? Taking us back 50 years on women's rights has mobilized an entire generation of young people. Last election, we saw two and three young people say they felt motivated to vote because they felt like abortion was on the ballot. We just had a Wisconsin Supreme Court race, which most people would never be paying attention to. Young people turned out in record numbers because that Supreme Court seat was going to be able to decide a reversal of an 1849 abortion ban. Young women turned out. We're seeing across the country a surge of young women registering and voting in huge numbers, and this is going to continue to be an issue because we see the extreme right wing continuing to try and attack women's rights, attack gay marriage, attack trans people. They're trying to take our country backwards, and that's just one thing I want to address with why we're, a lot of people say, well, how can you support Joe Biden? He's so much older than young voters, and I want to be clear that Donald Trump is no spring chicken either, and that it wouldn't matter to me if he was 50 years younger than Joe Biden. His policies are from the 1950s, whether it's on race, women's rights, gay marriage or the environment and we are not going backwards we're going forward and that's why we're supporting Joe Biden uh, President Speaker McCarthy McConnell Schumer the President of the United States will all be there to start having these discussions about raising the debt ceiling about the budget and on the wake of Secretary Yellen's announcement that we could default as soon as June 1st so it's all significant right. for sure while we're on the topic of Speaker McCarthy uh, joining us now the President's Council on Foreign Relations Richard Haas Five hours uh, Speaker ago, Kevin McCarthy has MSNBC. been in Israel for the past few days where yesterday he became the second speaker ever to address Israel's parliament. In his speech, McCarthy said his goal was to reaffirm the bipartisan support that Israel has in the U.S. Congress. But he also made headlines for something he said when speaking to the media after his address, asked by a Russian reporter about future USA to Ukraine. McCarthy offered his strongest words yet on the war in Europe. Listen. We know that uh, you don't support uh, the current unlimited and uh, uncontrolled uh, supplies of weaponry and aid to Ukraine. So can you comment, is it possible if in the near future uh, the U.S. policy regarding sending weaponry to Ukraine will change? Yeah, I'm not sure. The, the, the sound here is not good. Did he say, I don't support aid to Ukraine? No, I vote for aid for Ukraine. I support aid for Ukraine. I do not support what your country has done you to, to Ukraine. I do not support your killing of the children either. And I think for one standpoint, you should pull out. And I don't think it's right. And we will continue to support because the rest of the world sees it just as it is. Wow. As a frequent critic of Kevin McCarthy, I just want to say that was amazing, uh, Richard Haas, and also much needed in terms of how some Republicans were very carefully parsing their words about aid to Ukraine, and that's saying it mildly. This was resounding, and in an incredible situation, too. Well, it was good for several reasons. Yeah. One, it was a great message to Russia for them to hear, because they're counting uh, that you know, the oh, Republicans aren't going to support aid. They're wrong. Indeed, the administration is confident. It has the votes. That when this comes up again, crazy. probably uh, this summer or, or yeah, you know, the support, you're killing of the children either. And I think, here's how good, did he say I do? about future USA to Ukraine. McCarthy offered his strongest words. Ah. Gay marriage, 
Fox and Supreme Court race, which most people. Secretary Yellen's announcement that we could default as soon. The U.S. Congress, but he also made headlines for something he said. When we know that uh, you don't support uh, the current unlimited and uh, uncontrolled uh, supplies of weaponry and aid to Ukraine. So can you comment, is it possible if in the near future uh, the U.S. policy regarding sending weaponry to Ukraine will change? Yeah, I'm not sure. The, the, the sound here is not good. Did he say, I don't support aid to Ukraine? No, I vote for aid for Ukraine. I support aid for Ukraine. I do not support what your country has done you to, to Ukraine. I do not support your killing of the children either. And I think for one standpoint, you should pull out. And I don't think it's right. To Russian reporters. Your country should pull out. Wow. As a frequent critic of Kevin McCarthy, I just want to say that was amazing, uh, Richard <laughs> Haas, and also much needed in terms of how some Republicans were very carefully parsing their words about aid to Ukraine, and that's saying. We know that uh, you don't support uh, the current unlimited and uh, uncontrolled uh, supplies of weaponry and aid to Ukraine. So. Can you comment, is it possible if in the near future uh, the U.S. policy regarding sending weaponry to Ukraine will change? Yeah, I'm not sure. The, the, the sound here is not good. Did he say, I don't support aid to Ukraine? No, I vote for aid for Ukraine. I support aid for Ukraine. I do not support what your country has done you to, to Ukraine. I do not support your killing of the children either. And I think for one standpoint, you should pull out. And I don't think it's And we will continue to support because the rest of the world sees it just as it is. Wow. As a frequent critic of Kevin McCarthy, I just want to say that was amazing, uh, Richard Haas, and also much needed in terms of the summer or, or fall. It was also good that he said it in Israel. Yeah. Because Israel's been hedging its bets all along between Russia wow. and Ukraine. So the fact that McCarthy was that clear, that black and white on this issue was actually good. You know, it doesn't get rid of all the questions about whether we're going to have all the ammunition and equipment to send them. We can't sustain the race that the war is using up. It doesn't solve problems of manpower for Ukraine. But right. as a political signal, really, really good. Thing. I, yeah. really, I really yeah. liked that he, that was his message on foreign soil. We mm -hmm. can debate spending, we can debate Russian the reporter. continued aid, but right. when we, we He is on foreign soil. He's united with the U.S. president. And it's just harkens back to that moment where there was so much more bipartisanship in foreign policy. And it was it was nice to see that. It yeah. also no, it points out the good. fact, John, that while Kevin McCarthy hasn't ever been as strong as he was there, that most Republicans, yeah. Mitch McConnell especially, the leadership of the Republican Party has supported Ukraine. There are those loud voices that we talk about all the time. 
that have been talking about maybe pulling back entirely or at least not making it a blank check in, in their words. But this really is broadly the position of the party. Yeah, I'll, I'll, no doubt. This is the strongest he's been in terms of supporting Ukraine and denouncing what Russia's done. I'll parse it a little bit, though. He's never said that we shouldn't support Ukraine. He just said it should be unlimited support. So, And he didn't say differently here. So that, that's still a debate that could be coming this summer or fall, is whether or not that, this, especially if the counteroffensive, Richard, as you and I have been talking about, if the counteroffensive doesn't go as well as Ukraine hopes it does, could that impact the calculations, the funding that comes? And well, it should be noted that his strong support of Ukraine comes after a very prominent voice on cable news, on Fox News, is no longer on the air, a voice that was very skeptical of U.S. efforts to help. John, right, you're so cynical. No, but you're, you're right. There will be a big debate this all depending upon how the offensive goes. If the battlefield kind of looks like it looks today, plus or minus a few miles, then I think there's going to be a major debate in Europe in the United States. Are we, is this worth it? Would another year of fighting change any of the basics? So that debate is coming. But it's important that this year be a test of the strategy, give Ukraine the support, give them perhaps aircraft, give them more advanced munitions, see what happens, see what the Russians do, see if the Chinese step in to help them and so forth. But I think still, I think it's close to inevitable, we're going to have a first order debate on Ukraine probably come late fall, early winter about mm. where we're going there. Well, let's look at where it is right now. Uh, we're learning more about... Why don't they put a fucking uh, bounty on his head? Why doesn't Joe Biden <clears throat> um, United States our allies put a bounty on Putin's head to take him into custody and try him at the Hague?
right. So you're listening to like a commercial. They're kind of. Uh, he's, he's trying to do anything he can to, to delay or, or, or get away from uh, having to face the music here. Um, but honestly, I think it, you and I have slightly different views on this case in terms of whether he, his chance of success or not. Um, you, I think you think that this is... Um, Ms. Weinberg, are you a medical doctor? Saboteur. That's what the mother, these motherfuckers are. Occupied Democrats. Occupied Democrats. Occupied Democrats. Public media. Yeah, like they did with uh, what about you on fruits? Tweet. Justice Thomas and Maricopa County, big trouble in Little China are trending. Breitbart trending. Marvin Gaye, Al Franken, Ducey, Texas Legislature, Gates, as in Gates, Title 42, Baptist, the MVP, Iowa. Okay, the U.S. government. Okay, um, social novo promo for artists and business. Save our democracy, like your reply. Let's pay teachers as much as mayors. Probably liked your tweet. Why fucker Carlson got canned? Tammy liked my tweet. Uh, called DOJ 202-514-2000. Demand all six SCOTUS judges who overturned Roe v. Wade to resign immediately. They lied under oath. David G. and Robbie liked my reply. David G. retweeted my reply. What is that?
sound amplify marketing for artists like my tweet and my new music mm. subscribe to libs of tiktok hmm. following blah 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 lives of tiktok uh submissions Ooh. submissions at libs of tiktok.com DM submissions. Huh. The US Navy hired this non-binary drag queen as a digital ambassador to try to recruit people. What do they want to recruit drag queens for? What? Harpy Daniels. While serving as a squadron's administrative supervisor, Kelly shows are part of lip sync competitions. That are designed to boost morale. Kelly hopes to inspire people all over the world and show that you can serve your country and still be yourself. No fucking way. puzzling Navy Digital Ambassador. No fucking, no way. No way. The Babylon Bee. Oops. Excellent. I accidentally just subscribed or followed that. Ah. Matt Walsh sounds familiar. I think that's a bright wing blowhard. Let's see what the oh, Let me go. What the Let me go. After a brief struggle, the alleged thief was able to get away. It's unclear what merchandise actually was taken. So far, no arrests have been made. Huh. What? 
Good Samaritan trying to stop two alleged thieves at a TJ Maxx in Mira Loma. Dramatic video captured by a customer showing the takedown at the location huh. on Illuminate Avenue. At least two women wearing black hoodies seen trying to walk out with arms full of purses. But when the second one tried to leave, a man jumped in to stop her, tackling her, eventually knocking her to the ground. After a brief struggle, the alleged thief was able to get away. It's unclear what merchandise actually was taken. So far, no arrests have been made. How do you know that it's like a... A good Samaritan trying... Just a typical day in California. Okay. Um. <clears throat> So I responded to a bunch of people, a bunch of, uh, well not people, um, music promotion things on Twitter and uh, then they asked me questions about where do you want to go 